The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. Glad you're here this morning. My name's Chase, and I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to say how encouraging it is to see Hannah and to hear us commission her, uh, both as a pastor and then as a, a dad of a, a daughter who was a little girl and now is a young lady who would like to go to the nations. I was so encouraged. I told her family who were here last hour how encouraged I am by the, the work that her parents put in, discipling, praying, and loving. And now here she is. Also, I want to say pray for our college students. We've got 130 college students that are away finishing a retreat with Shannon and Whitley, and we're just asking the Lord to be with them as they finish a good time with with God. And uh, I want to say also, just if you're watching on live stream for about the next five to 10 minutes, we're going to go just to audio for live stream because we have another one of our goers here who works in a, a, a region where it's probably good if we don't have video up. So I'm going to ask though my good friend Brenda to come up and would you welcome Brenda? So Brenda is a is a physician in a hospital in the Middle East, and many of you know her, and really from the time I think she was a teenager, she sensed the Lord's call and made a purpose and a plan that she just very intentionally said, I'm going to follow Jesus to one of the least reached places, and ended up landing at a hospital in the Middle East where she's been for about 12 years now, is that right, roughly? Yes. And uh, this hospital, she is the the chief medical officer, she's OBGYN, and they delivered 4,000 babies last year. So she's busy, right? (laughs) Um, But she is there speaking good news about Jesus to lots of her friends. So um, Brenda, just wanted to ask you if you just share with us, just kind of for the last 20 months as a CMO of a hospital in a crazy time uh, what has it been like for you? What's it been like to minister there where you are and, uh, and in your city? Yeah, definitely these were uh, probably the hardest two years of being there. Um, I, like he said, I'm the chief medical officer. And about maybe five months into COVID, the government asked us to be the um, obstetric COVID hospitals for, for our city. So the city's a, a little over half a million people about. And uh, so all the obstetric patients that had uh, COVID during this uh, last year have come to our hospital. Um, and thankfully we're doing really well now for the last two months, but uh, the Delta wave was hard for us. So it was a lot of managing uh, the physicians, uh, helping with the nurses, just a uh, t- tough time. Um, I was just talking to one of my uh, medical school classmates the other day, though, and we were just discussing, because he's also in administration and in the place where he works, and how kind of every time there's a challenge coming up, you see God help you through it and work through it, and then it seems like the same day one or two new challenges come, but uh, just a constant process of seeing God kind of work us through the, the challenges and obstacles that have been there. And so, Brenda, you're in a city where there are lots of people groups from the Muslim and Hindu world, from kind of many nations, but of, of the natives there, you say there are about 500,000 people in your city. Of the locals there, how many of those are, are followers of Jesus? Not very many. I mean, we only know a handful of locals that are followers of Christ. So less than 50. Yeah. 
in a city of 500,000. So great ministry opportunities. When we read in the scripture, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's just so clear in, in your city. So as you think about how you're serving as a, as a CMO and as a physician, but then also how you're serving as someone who wants people to know Jesus, how, how would you ask us to be praying for you in the coming weeks and months? Yeah, I think specifically for me, one just hard thing for me right now is uh, my parents are having health issues. And as she said, I've been there for a little over 11 years and just knowing how to serve over their best and the people best, um, and also uh, serve my parents well. Um, at the same time, I don't exactly know what that looks like coming up and what they're gonna need. Um, and then with COVID, obviously, well, not obviously, but we have very strict rules there, um, probably compared to what most people experience here. And so we haven't really been able to get in houses with any of our local friends uh, for the last year and a half. and so. Uh, looking at how how ministry opportunities or conversations change over mm. this year, next year, see if doors, uh, thankfully things are doing really well right there right now. Uh, so hopefully maybe some opportunities for discussions will open up again. Yeah, and so with your city in mind, what would you ask us to pray for the city that you minister in, for the region that you minister in? You know, one exciting thing that's happening right now is that the government, um, you know, we were the first hospital in the Emirate uh, where, I, where I am, and um, we were there before any of the oil money was there, so we have lots of um, goodwill with the people that are there, and the government has asked our hospital in particular to be the first hospital to partner with the Ministry of Tolerance um, with some initiatives that they have in the country, um, and so, you know, we'd like for that to, you know, bear, bear great fruit. We don't know where that will lead. Um, we're just in the beginning process of uh, partnering with the Ministry of Tolerance, um, this year was also our, our 60th year um, being in the country, and we weren't able to have a big party last November when the actual 60 years happened, so we said we'll have a year of party, and then hopefully this November things will um, be better to where we can have some celebrations, and it looks like this is um, on target where um, a bunch of influential people will be able to be there, and hopefully the uh, ruler of the country will be able to come, and just that through this, we can continue to impact the, the nation. Um, the, the ruler of the country has um, really blessed our hospital greatly. Um, and we hope that that will continue and look forward to seeing mm. what opportunities develop through this. Uh, Amen. This next two months of continual discussions. Well, Brenda, I, I want to pray for you, but also just want to say as a, as a friend and as as somebody who gets to be part of the leadership of TBC, uh, we're just so incredibly proud of you and we're so grateful for you. Um, I just think about for over a decade, you just very intentionally laid aside a lot uh, for the sake of the gospel and, um, and your life just magnifies Jesus and the joy with which you follow Jesus and share Christ with others is so inspiring, so encouraging, and we're just so grateful so let me ask the Lord to be with you. God, I thank you for Brenda. I thank you for uh, just a friend that she is, God, for how she was faithful to Jesus when she was here in Central Texas and how she's faithful to Jesus and the Middle East and just how faithful you've been to her, God. I thank you for the opportunities that you've given her. Lord, I thank you for how you've blessed her with a great ministry and the people around her with great ministry. And God, we pray, Father, 
um, in the city that she works in, Lord, that, um, that the curve of COVID would go down drastically so that things would open up, so there'd be further opportunities. God, I pray that you'd give her and others who lead with her wisdom as they seek to make much of Jesus Christ. We pray for continued favor with the leadership of the country, God, and that there'd be uh, great opportunities to talk about Jesus with influencers in the nation. And God, we pray that this city uh, would one day be seen as a light for the gospel of Jesus, God. Um, We just rejoice and give you praise for Brenda and pray, God, for your continued hand of grace on her as she ministers. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's thank Brenda for being here. Thank you so much. We're going to now jump in our text today. We're ending our series on, in Mark on the good and gracious king. And last week, Pastor Dave walked us through just this difficult, beautiful, hard text of Mark 15 where we look at Jesus crucified. And one Christian author and poet has described what Saturday might have looked like. He says, on the seventh day, God rested in the darkness of the tomb, having finished on the sixth day all his work of joy and doom. Now the word had fallen silent and the water had run dry. The bread had all been scattered and the light had left the sky. The flock had lost its shepherd and the seed was sadly sown. The courtiers betrayed their king and nailed him to his throne. O Sabbath rest by Calvary, O calm of tomb below, where the grave clothes and the spices cradle him we do not know. Rest well, beloved Jesus, Caesar's Lord and Israel's King, in the brooding of the spirit and the darkness of the spring. And then comes Sunday. So Mark 16 begins this way, when the Sabbath was passed, when the seventh day was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him and very early on the first day of the week. When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. But go, see the place where they laid him, and go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. God, help us to see as we look in your word that the resurrection changes everything. And Lord, let it change everything about us for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we want to talk about good and gracious resurrection power. And as we do, we want to see that the resurrection is a new creation story. Verse 2 says, very early on the first day of the week. See, the Bible begins with these seven days of the week. And John chapter 20 tells us that we're on the first day of the week after John chapter 1 has said, just like Genesis 1 says, in the beginning was the word. 
So when Mark says it's on the first day of the week, he wants us to know that new creation is happening and everything has been changed. How does something that started so small grow into something so powerful? How can the full but meager manger lead to an awesome and empty tomb? Well, it started in Bethlehem among shepherds and animals ends with this stone rolled away. How, how does it happen? You can't imagine that something so small could something would turn into something so beautiful. Well, we see examples of this all the time. This is a Ford Model A, the first Ford ever invented. This might not actually be the first one ever invented, but you get the idea, right? 1903 to 1905, this was Ford's car. It had a whopping eight horsepower. When people saw it, they thought these things are never going to last. They can't go as far as an actual horse, right? And then they need gas. And, well, I guess you could stop at a gas station. Oh, but there's no gas stations. So people wondered, would it ever actually last? What did last? This is a 2020 Shelby Cobra 500 GT it's got 800 horsepower. This one just happens to be God's favorite color, burnt orange, right? <laughs> but, but it's way, way different. We went from this eight horsepower to this. It'll go farther and faster than any horse ever imagined. See, the resurrection, it, it's kind of like that in that in this manger, this child is born and the shepherds come, but it's in an obscure place. And then Herod finds out, oh, there, there are babies in Bethlehem and one of them says he's going to be the new king. Well, we'll just kill all the kids, two and under. And so Jesus escapes to Egypt. And then when he's 12, he gets lost from his family. They're away from the city, a city of hundreds of thousands of people. And you think, well, this could all end here, but they find him teaching in the temple. And then he begins to speak about the kingdom of heaven and it upsets the leaders so much that they want to kill him. They think they're going to hinder his plans, but in his death, they actually bring about the plan of God and we see the resurrected Christ and it's a powerful thing. So that's the first thing we want to talk about as we talk about this resurrection that changes everything. It's a demonstration of his power. It's a demonstration of his power as the author of new creation Jesus has conquered sin and death through the cross and resurrection. And as the firstborn of new creation, this arisen Christ, he forged a path of resurrection for those who would follow. What do you do with this story? People do all kinds of things with this story. But one thing you really can't do is say that it was made up. I mean, if it was made up, the people who wrote it were really not good at making up stories. Dave's talked about it, Tim has talked about it, I've talked about it, we'll talk about it again. In the, in the first century, it's awful to even say this out loud, but it's just true, a woman wouldn't be a credible witness. So if you wanted to make up a story about resurrection, it wouldn't start like this. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices. These ladies were the witnesses. Well, they wouldn't be the witnesses, and then as the witnesses, it says they go back and they tell their friends and and nobody believes them if you keep on reading. This is not how you would make up this story, but this is how Mark writes down the story. And the reason 
that's written down is because Jesus rose from the dead and his resurrection is a demonstration of his power. This angel says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. See, this is something new. There are people who would say, well, no, the Jews believed in resurrection. Remember the story of Lazarus? But that's not resurrection. That's Lazarus rising from the dead. That's different, right? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus could still get sick. He could still sin. He could still stub his toe and and hurt, and one day Lazarus was going to die. Resurrection's different. When Jesus rose from the dead, and by the way, for all of us who are in Christ, when we raise from the dead, we'll never die again. We'll never struggle with sin. We'll never be sick. We'll never stub our toe and it'll be hurt. We'll never deal with afflictions or frustrations or conflict again. This is something new that was happening. One author says it this way, the resurrection declared that Jesus was not the ordinary sort of political king, rebel leader that some had supposed. He was the leader of a far larger, more radical revolution than anyone had ever imagined. He was inaugurating a whole new world, a new creation, a new way of being human. He was forging a way into a new cosmos, a new era, a form of existence hinted at all along, but never before unveiled in the resurrection changed everything as a demonstration of his power. But it wasn't just a demonstration of his power, it was a validation of his witness. Look at verse seven of Mark 16. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now Mark is writing and most scholars believe he's taking notes from Jesus' friend and follower Peter. And so here it's included, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Can you imagine the grief and the regret, the shame, the embarrassment that Peter was experiencing as the one who had said he would die with Jesus and then he denied him. And Jesus told him it would happen, but he also said, hey, you're gonna turn again. You're gonna turn again, and when you turn, I want you to strengthen your brothers. And you think about the change in Peter's life. He goes from this guy who is kind of all hat, no cattle, to a guy who's bold with his witness. He's not just speaking the words. He's gonna end up dying for Jesus. When I see that, when I mean, you think about how Peter kind of wrote in the, the epistles that he wrote in, the one that we read from as we began, just right after he says that we're to be holy because he is holy, Peter writes, you weren't redeemed by perishable things like silver or gold, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of a lamb. See, Peter's not just writing to people in kind of some abstract way. He knew what it meant to deny Jesus and be redeemed by his blood. He knew what it meant to follow this risen king. So then when he says in his second letter, no scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, but people were moved by God. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They wrote down what God wanted us to have. See, Jesus' witness was validated 
the writer of Mark says, just as he told you, Jesus told his disciples this is going to happen. It starts in Mark 8. I'm going to be delivered over the hands of the leaders and the chief priests, the hands of sinful men, and there I'll suffer and be crucified. They're going to kill me, but on the third day, I'll rise from the dead. Just what Jesus said had hap- would happen had happened. His witness is validated. We see in the resurrection that Jesus can be trusted to keep his promises and that nothing can keep him from keeping his promises. And so it changes everything. So when you look at Peter and then when you look at people's lives who name the name of Jesus, but their lives aren't transformed, you just wonder, well, what's going on there? That looks really strange. That's not the way it ought to be. The Holy Spirit that empowered Peter to change ought to change everything because the resurrection changes everything. It means that Jesus keeps his promises. It also means that he's Lord. Everything we are and have and hope to be belongs to him. One of my dearest friends in the world is a guy named Billy. He's a a professor at a college in Georgia. And Billy just does an amazing job of befriending unbelievers. And one of his good friends in college and right out of college was a guy named Hunter. And Hunter was not a believer, was an atheist, just rejected any idea of God. And they're driving one day between Houston and Dallas north on I-45. Hunter's driving and they're kind of arguing back and forth about the gospel. And all of a sudden, Billy says, Hunter just swerves over to the side of the road, gets out of the car and walks over into the ditch and just starts arguing with himself. Do you understand what this means? If this is real, like if this is real, it changes everything. If there's a God and his son rose from the dead, everything about your life has to change. Now, Hunter has never come to believe. But when I hear that... I think, you know, that might be an argument some Christians need to have with themselves. We might need to be reminded that there is a risen Lord who saved us and who's redeemed us, but he's also our king. And everything we are, all of our dreams, everything we have belong to him because his witness has been validated. He is Lord over the strongest forces that would hinder his plans. So the resurrection is a demonstration of his power, it's the validation of his witness and it ought to lead to the transformation of his people. And that's the story that the verses nine through 12 tell. But we gotta talk about something right before verse nine just briefly. If you look in your Bible, between verse eight and verse nine, it it says this weird thing, it's in brackets and it says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, nine through 20. So in case you hadn't seen that, I want you to see it. We're going to talk about it in a little bit, but first let's read verses 9 through 20. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him, and as they mourned, they wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, it says that they didn't believe it. After these things, he appeared another or in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they didn't believe either. And afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at a table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. 
And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. And they'll cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They'll lay their hands on the sick and they'll recover. And so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by these accompanying signs. So as people are transformed, they're transformed from unbelief and fear to an unstoppable force. Look at verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves. They're reclining at the table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and the hardness of heart. They hadn't believed the lady's testimony. They didn't believe it. And so he rebuked them. They're afraid and they're not believing. But then you look at verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. They turn into this unstoppable force of good news declarers, good work demonstrators, spirit-empowered witnesses. These people knew what one scholar says, being saved doesn't just mean, as it does for many today, going to heaven when they die. It means knowing God's rescuing power, the power revealed in Jesus, which anticipates in the presence God's final act of deliverance. It means knowing this God in the present who's going to make all things new and being about that same task ourselves. But there's this problem. Why, why is this here? What do these brackets mean? It leads to some questions. I want to talk about these questions and then just tell you what I think the brackets mean. And the questions are this. Number one, is the Bible trustworthy? If it's got something like, in it, like this in it, can we trust the scripture? Number two, can we teach core doctrines from Mark 16, 9 through 20? And then number three, are these unique sayings or can they be found in other places in scripture? So I want to answer the questions in reverse order. Are these unique sayings? Is there something new and different in Mark 16, 9 through 20? Are these common and other places in scripture. And the answer is that these are, are all stated in almost the exact same way in, in other places. So if you look, if we were to kind of walk through Mark 16, 9 through 20, verses 9 through 11, that's really John 21 through 19. Mark just makes a synopsis in three verses as he often does things fast. That's kind of what John 20, 1 through 19 says. And then if you look at Mark 6, 12 through 13, well, that's Luke 24, 13 through 35, these two brothers on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appears and they don't know who he is and then he breaks bread and their hearts are warmed and they recognize this is the risen Christ and he tells them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Mark 16, 15 through 18, well, that, that's just one of the commissioning statements like Matthew 28, like John 21, like Acts chapter 2, like Luke 24. Or what about this thing where these people are being bitten by snakes? Well, that actually happens to Paul in Acts chapter 28. He's bitten by a snake. It's a viper. Acts 28, 1 through 6 tells us. And he's not harmed. And then the last two verses really just kind of describe Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 and beyond. So you can find this in all of Scripture, but probably we wouldn't just teach core doctrines right out of Mark 16, 9 through 20. But we don't have to because... The same thing's just said over and over and over. So that, that brings us to the question, is the Bible trustworthy? And I would say these brackets prove all the more that it is. Why, why are the brackets here? 
the brackets are here is because we found earlier manuscripts of scripture. We have so many manuscripts that people go and do archeological digs and as they do these digs, they find new texts. And what these new texts confirm is that although it was written by over 40 authors on three continents over 1,500 years, the unity of the Bible and the message that it tells is confirmed over and over and over again. People's questions are like a hammer on the anvil of Scripture, and the anvil of Scripture just keeps breaking the skeptics' questions. These brackets are here because we found earlier manuscripts, and so we got nothing to hide. The truth is our friend. So someone, maybe even Mark himself, it looks like might have added this a little bit later to Scripture. But the more we see, the more we find new manuscripts, what we see is the the veracity of Scripture is confirmed. It is factual. It is eyewitness history. It's accurate accounts. And even we've had a, a great critic called Dan Wallace come and share about this, about the strength that we have and our confidence in the Scripture so that we can believe it's trustworthy. They gather these manuscripts, these ancient manuscripts, and they look at them to see, do they confirm one another? Is the message confirmed? Is it true? And if you take any other ancient text and you stack all the ancient manuscripts that we have, they end up being about four feet high. And if you take the scripture and you stack up all the manuscripts we have, They're over a mile high. And they just confirm over and over and over the message of Scripture that Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose from the dead. See, the Scripture, we're told, is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. So this word is something we ought to hold dear. We ought to cherish. The brackets are there because we're just not afraid to tell the truth. Yes, the Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is trustworthy. So what about these words that Mark included? What about these words? Well, they're wrestling with the resurrection. They're not sure what to do. And so... So these ladies come and tell them, but they're, they're just not believing. And Jesus rebukes them. He still can't believe that they can't believe. And he tells them, go and proclaim the gospel. We've talked about missions a lot today, and we love talking about missions at TBC. Do go and get one of Hannah's prayer cards. Support her ministry. Know that we support her ministry, and you may know this. If you've been here a while, you do. 20% of everything you give to the general fund at TBC goes straight to our missionaries. And we do that because Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Go and proclaim the gospel. This is what God's people are to be about in light of the resurrection of our good and gracious King. One scholar says this, he says, Christian holiness consists not of trying as hard as we can to be good, but of learning to live in the new world created by Easter, the new world we publicly entered in our baptism. So we don't believe that baptism saves you. It's not a salvific act. We're saved by grace through faith, but we're baptized, 
because we want the world to know that Jesus is Lord. It's our public profession of faith. So two weeks ago, we baptized 16 brothers and sisters who said, I want the world and the church to know that I'm following Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, but you've not been baptized, I encourage you to follow Jesus in obedience through baptism. This author goes on to say, there are many parts of the world we can't do anything about except pray. But there's one part of the world, there's one physical reality that we can do something about, and that is the creature we call myself. So Jesus told us to go and make disciples, and we, we can do something about that with ourselves. We can go and make disciples. Well, what about verses 17 and 18? I mean, this is, it says, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink deadly poison, will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So are, are, are we that church, right? <laughs> are, are we saying that you should go pick up serpents and drink deadly poison? I mean, they, hear me, they, there are people that, that do that. Man, it's so sad. People... People play with vipers, they get bit, they get sick, some of them die, their children die. Well, is the gospel saying this is what you need to go and do? I think we've got to be careful. We, we just so tend to read the scripture in an individualistic way. We read it like it's written to us. It wasn't written to us. It was written for us, but it was written to first century believers, and it was written to communities of people. We forget this. So when we read Paul's letters and he says, you... We think that means me, like as an individual, when actually Paul, when he says you, he's using a Greek word that originated in Texas called y'all, right? It's plural. So in the same way, you gotta be careful to go, is this for every believer? When the same way, when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. We don't really believe you should pluck your eye out and cut your hand off, but we really believe you ought to take sin very seriously. Well, no, we don't believe that everyone's supposed to go pick up snakes and drink poison, but if you read the story of God's people, Moses laid a rod down in front of the magicians of Egypt and it became a snake and he picked it up and he wasn't harmed. And in Acts 28, Paul does pick up a bundle of sticks and a viper bites him and he's not harmed. I think the point is, is that God is all-powerful, and he's almighty. And this is informative, but it's not prescriptive. But what we should do is just like these disciples did. We should go from unbelief and fear to unstoppable force. We should go to be good news declarers, good work demonstrators, and spirit-empowered witnesses. So why is it the disciples struggled to believe, and why do we sometimes struggle to believe? Why do we sometimes struggle to be all that we can be in Christ? A lot of people say it's because we're resistant to change. I don't think it's that we're resistant to change. I think it's that we're resistant to the loss that change might bring. What's it going to mean for me if I really just full on run hard after Jesus, live sacrificially, speak the truth in love in hard situations? What's that going to mean for me? What am I going to lose but Jesus said, unless you lose your life, you can't find it. Unless you lay your life down, you can't pick it up. It can be frightening, but it shouldn't be because the tomb is empty. 
And the resurrection changes everything. And see, that stone that was rolled away, on Friday, the disciples were looking at a mountain of despair called Calvary, and the stone that rolled away was like a stone of hope. When they looked at that empty tomb, their fears were rolling away. Their lack of power to live to please God was rolling away. And it wasn't just rolling away for them. It was rolling away for us. So we can trust this king and we can trust this word. The scripture is trustworthy. That's one of my favorite adjectives to use for the scripture, trustworthy. My other favorite adjective to use for the scripture is neglected. And when you think about this book that we have, we ask God for all kinds of things. God, would you speak to me about this? God, would you teach me about this? God, would you give me wisdom about this? God, would you help me know how to raise these kids? God, would you help me know how to love my spouse? God, would you help me know what to do at work? And if I just ask you, hey, if you could have a 30-minute conversation where God would speak to you tomorrow, most of you would raise your hand and say, yeah, I would love that. I don't know if I'd raise my hand. I'm kind of afraid of what he might tell me, right? But here's the reality. God has spoken and he's spoken in this book and you can have a 30-minute conversation with him any day you want. And there's this living and active word. We talk so much about knowing God's will when there's so much of God's will, we don't take time to read. So what do we do with Scripture? What do we do with Scripture as people who embrace the resurrected King that Scripture tells the story of? I think four things. Number one, we've got to spend time in it to get to know Jesus in it. And as we spend time in it, we've got to be shaped by it. The disciples before Jesus rose from the dead weren't shaped by his words. They didn't believe. They argued with him about it. But when he rose from the dead and when the spirit empowered them, they were shaped by it. They were changed by it. The whole world was changed by it. And though it started small, when they spoke with boldness, they were all scattered but they kept preaching and they were scattered further and they kept preaching and the church kept growing like it grows today in Tehran and Bangladesh and Kabul and even here in central Texas. Spend time in it, be shaped by it, see Jesus in it. The whole book is telling the story of this good and gracious king. And as you see Jesus in it, share this Jesus with others. Make disciples because Jesus rose from the dead. You know, some have said that the Gospels in the book of Acts really ought to end with dot, dot, dot. To be continued. Right? Because the story of the people of God doesn't end right here. It begins as the story of new creation. It continues on today here. It's going to continue on in Madagascar. It's continuing on in the Middle East. Why? Well, N.T. Wright says this is why. Because people who believe in the resurrection and God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. Let's listen to that again. Why does the work continue on? Because people who believe in the resurrection in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last, 
These people are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. So as we go to be about laboring for the sake of the gospel while we wait for new creation to come, May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may that God equip us with every good thing so that we might do his will, that he might work in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom belong glory forever and ever. He is a good and gracious king. Amen.